doesn't always matter where you start. It's the process of constant improvement that defines how far and how fast you get there. And I always give this example, like imagine if you improve something 1% a day and it compounds over a year, it's like 3,600% or 37 time improvement. And in sports, it's easy. It's, you, you do a race and you write down three things you can improve next time. Next race, write down three things you can improve. You just constantly try to do that. So that process is way more important than like, am I a good manager, for example? It's like, imagine if you spend 30 minutes, five minutes every day, reading and learning and thinking how I can become a better manager. Imagine the compounded over three years. Like, how could they manage you in three years? Uh, so I think a lot of people sometimes like, are you a smart or not? Are you good at this or not? Well, it's a good cocktail party conversation, but like getting stuck with that is really bad. You should get mm-hmm. stuck with the process. What's the best process to improve something tiny bit every day or every week? And then you look back five years later and it's like, oh my God. doing out there folks this is your host with the most kenny vaughn i play for team breakline and i am so excited to be in the arena with my partners in crime what is up everybody it is sophia i play for team breakline and welcome back to the arena thank you for having me kenny and sophia this is bethany coates delighted to be here Folks, let me tell you, I'm excited today. Oh my goodness, this is one of them times we just get a chance to meet some very interesting and inspiring people in the arena. Bethany, would you mind doing the honors this week and telling our listeners who we got a chance to hear from? Yes, I was so delighted to have a conversation with Sami Inkinen. He is the CEO and founder of Verda Health, and they are on a mission to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. Mm. Sami is a serial entrepreneur. He was also co-founder of Trulia, and he and his team took that company public before it was subsequently acquired by Zillow. He's a Stanford GSB grad. He um, is actually originally from Finland and he graduated from Helsinki University, but he actually grew up on a farm on the border of Finland and Russia. And one of the stories that he talks about is potato farming, you know, and how that was sort of the root of his incredible work ethic and um, and his drive for success. So it was really wonderful to have a chance to chat with him. Sophia, would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation. There were so many gems, so many pearls of wisdom. What do you want to leave with our listeners as they're preparing to dive into this conversation? I mean, there was, y'all, there were several times in this conversation, my jaw was actually dropping. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> this man's life story is unrivaled. They should make an HBO series about him. But one of the coolest parts that I took away, he was talking about how people who climb Mount Everest don't do it because they're getting paid. In fact, they'll pay $30,000. They might lose their life. They might lose their toes, but they do it because it's something that deep in their core, they feel like they need to rise to the occasion, elevate themselves to the challenge, ultimately accomplish that goal. And he talks about like, how do we find our own Mount Everest? Something where 
It's not coming from, you know, like getting paid enough money. It's not really from any external validation. It really has to be coming from within. And I just, I wrote down in my notebook, find your own Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. mm, so A, I love that because I think it is so applicable, especially as we're thinking about our life's work and just having that intrinsic motivation. B, I would absolutely watch that HBO special. So mm -hmm. if you're out there from HBO, I'm just telling you, you might have some great content to work with here. You know, some thoughts that I had around this conversation as I was listening to Sammy's life story, I really actually love the quote that we were able to share in the intro regarding incremental growth and how he's no different than anyone else, but he just has this amazing ability to try to get a little bit better every single day. He said, if you can get 1% better every single day, just get 1% better. You don't have to be the best. And that growth mindset and that growth mentality, mm -hmm. I think is just emblematic in all of the amazing accomplishments that he's been able to achieve. This dude is a hustler. Mm -hmm. He has Straight worked up hustler. his butt off for everything that he has, has had. Him and his wife literally rode across the Pacific. Well, yeah, I was wondering if you were gonna touch on that. They rode, they rode in a rowboat. Starting Folks. two companies wasn't enough. They had to row across the Pacific from San Francisco to Hawaii. They self-propelled it across so, the entire ocean. <laughs> who does that? By the way, there were sharks and rogue waves. In shark-infested waters! Folks, yes. I'm, trying, I'm trying to get you to understand. This man has the receipts and he has worked diligently for every single thing that he has brought and manifested into his life. And so I am thankful that he made a point in this conversation to say, it all starts with that growth mindset. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you ladies, but it might be that time. Y'all think we should just dive on in and give the listeners what they came here for? Let's dive in. We will see you guys on the other side. Sami, I'm delighted to have you here with us today. Sami, CEO and founder of Verta Health. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks, Bethany. Very excited to join. And we have a lot of ground to cover. And I wanted to just dive right into Verta Health. You saw, um, you saw a really important opportunity, and you saw it both from a personal perspective and also a business perspective. Will you talk to us about those early days when you realized that this was a key, a key opportunity that you wanted to get after? Yeah, well, I, I had started a company or two companies actually before and the most recent was Trulia which you know consumer internet company went public and everything so having gone through a couple of those kinds of journeys I was actually very what I might call trigger shy which is mm -hmm. to say that it's very easy to kind of fall in love with an idea or I want to create that it's kind of like a first date with someone but it's a very different story from getting married and living 20 years with someone and I had experienced and known that that's what it actually takes. And that's what actually happens when you start a company and, you know, try to change the world or, or change the category. So I was very tr trigger shy after my couple of experiences. I shouldn't just kind of get excited about something light or little because it's a 20 year commitment to to actually bring something to the marketplace. So that's kind of the backdrop. And so what ended up happening to me with, with Verda was uh, a very personal and then eventually or pretty quickly it was like, 
this is going to be my life mission for the next many decades. And so I'll give you the very brief version. I had always seen type 2 diabetes, which we address at Verda, as a impossible problem to solve. In fact, sadly, I always saw it as a problem where people already know what they should be doing. They just don't do it. Mm-hmm. So it's a problem where people already know what they should be doing, which is to, you know, eat healthy and exercise, but they just don't do it. It's a lifestyle disease. You can't solve it. And everything changed in my head. Everything changed in my head when I discovered soon after winning the world championships in triathlon in my age group, mm-hmm. I discovered that I was pre-diabetic and on my way to becoming type 2 diabetic. So that completely changed my view on what type 2 diabetes might be. And without going into the details, what then happened, uh, that kind of opened my eyes to a problem that maybe could be solved in a different way. And it felt very personal that if I can make that happen, um, I should do it. And so happy to dive into the details, but that's kind of what happened. And I've been on that mission now for six, seven years. So you set out from the very beginning as you launched Verda, you said that the mission is to reverse type two diabetes in a hundred million people by 2025. Um, where are you all now in in your journey toward attaining that mission and how are you doing it? What is your solution? How are you accomplishing this incredibly aggressive goal? Yeah, we do have this ambitious mission of reversing type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. But surprisingly so, we are absolutely on on track. Now, it, it does take a couple of things for us to achieve that. One is we have to continue on this exponential path of scaling as opposed to linear, which we are on exponential path. And then the second thing, well, what does need to happen is there's about 30 or 34 million people with diabetes, mostly type 2 diabetes in America. So we certainly have to go international as well to to go outside of US. But to your question, how do we do that? So maybe a little bit of a context that type 2 diabetes historically has been seen as a chronic progressive disease, meaning once you get it, you have it for the rest of your life. And the best you can do is to slow down the progression of the disease with more medications. No, the bad news is it's in progressively costlier and it gets worse and worse and worse and then usually ends up with amputations, blindness and death from one of the complications of, of type 2 diabetes. So the, the big innovation and the big promise that we do at Verda is that we say, hey, you can actually reverse and put this disease into remission, that you can actually make someone healthy. And if you go to a doctor, they wouldn't be able to tell that you actually have type 2 diabetes and you offer all the medications. And the way we do it is it's really a combination of two things. So one, biologically, we reverse type 2 diabetes through nutrition. So sounds like a boring concept, but a very novel concept that we literally use nutrition in a novel way to to reverse type 2 diabetes not in a traditional eat less and exercise more and be hungry all the time. So nutrition is one, but it's all through behavior change. So we don't sell cheap food or anything. And then the second part is, you know, the best protocol fails if people don't follow or can't do it safely. So the second part is 
as a company, we are basically a telemedicine company, a provider-led telemedicine company. So we use technology and the way we deliver telemedicine to provide all the support and behavior change support, medication deep prescription and all the medical supervision to do this safely. So when you combine those two things, the right protocols nutritionally, and then secondly, the 24 seven support and the way to deliver longitudinal care. If you combine those two things, uh, we've been able to show that type two diabetes can be reversed and, and systematically so. Thank you for sharing that, Sami. And one of the like one of the key issues that you have drawn attention to over the course of your career in life is sugar and the role that sugar plays in making us sick. And you and your wife actually did this in an incredible journey called the Fat Chance Row. Will you talk to us about <clears throat> that experience and the message that you all were trying to share with the world? Yeah, well, let me start from the, the middle part of your question. So the journey and then, then the message. So the journey to summarize was that indeed, uh, my wife and I, mostly my wife and me, me, me taking more of the credit, wife did most of the work, but my wife and I, we jumped into a rowing boat. So no motor, no engine, just a rowing boat uh, in California, Monterey, California. And then we rowed across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, which is, you know, more than two, almost 3,000 nautical miles. It took 45 days and three hours of physical misery, but uh, in, in many ways, kind of a transformative life experience. So over 45 days, we rode across the Pacific Ocean, unsupported, no support boats, no helicopters, self-sufficient with the food, with, uh, you know, drinks of water we made out of ocean water, drinking water. So that that's what we did. Wait, Sami, so we're talking about a 20-foot rowboat that you and your wife self-powered across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, yeah, in, in, indeed, it, it does sound, it actually sound, sounds crazy to, to me as well. It feels like an out-of-body experience now that I'm sitting in a, in a leather chair in my home, home office and staring pixels on, on a computer screen. Uh, it, it does feel like, did, did we really do that? But uh, yes, indeed, we did. And most importantly, we, uh, we started as a married couple and we finished as a married couple, which is a miracle in itself. <laughs> Wait, so what What was the dynamic like, though? I mean, it was, so it was 45 days, just the two of you out on the open ocean. How did you, you know, how did you interact? What was the dynamic? Were you able to stay kind of friendly? I don't know if I could actually accomplish something like that with my husband. I think that it would be so hard. Not just the physical element of it, the, the emotional element of it, you know, really depending on one other person for everything for 45 days. Y yeah, yes, indeed. Um, well, th there's a number of things that uh, happened, but let me just ex explain kind of the, how the day usually went. So each of us wrote about almost 18 hours a day. So mm. that about six hours to sleep. And uh, about 12 hours of that was overlapping. So there's two rowing positions. That is to say that when I slept six hours, my wife was rowing. And when she was sleeping, I, I was rowing. But that leaves 12 hours 
about uh, you know time up both rowing and suffering at the same time. So there's plenty of time to talk about all all, all kinds of topics. Um, and you know, part of it you want silence, you don't want to listen to anything. But then part of it is you you suddenly have time to to you know have all kinds of conversations about life and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I will give a tip to any married person and perhaps even someone who's contemplating marriage. One of the questions my wife asked me while we were wrong, she said, which one of our friends would you marry if it wasn't for me? Whoa! And, uh, <laughs> the right answer is, is not to answer the question. I did answer and that that was my only real conversational mistake during <laughs> the role. But uh, I'll just finish that by saying, it is indeed amazing when you go through lots of hardship and a life experience that really nobody can truly understand unless you've done it and you do it with your spouse. Mm -hmm. And so stepping off the boat and, uh, you know, giving, embracing each other and giving each other a hug on the platform in Hawaii off the boat was mm -hmm. definitely one of the most, if not the most sweetest moment of my life and knowing that this other person and only this other person who I haven't been married with has gone through this mm -hmm. it's it was a very amazing feeling and still is that's phenomenal were there um were there moments of fear when I when I was reading about it I actually followed you for part of that journey because it was such an incredible feat um and I remember um some references to rogue waves and shark infested waters, you know, w were there moments of fear that you all had to pass, you know, press on through? Yeah. Well, we did see some sharks, but I would say the sharks weren't the, the source of fear, but absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a sailor. My wife is not a sailor. So we have very limited sort of real ocean experience and off the 45 days, uh, about 30 days were stormy and the first three mm. weeks, weeks where it's just absolutely horrendous uh can't really estimate the the size of the waves i don't know could be even 20 30 foot waves at, at mm. the time um uh it was definitely scary particularly for the first i would say five to seven days um uh, but there, there's a, there you know obviously we we kind of knew how to, to navigate the boat and there are techniques in which you can position it uh, perpendicular to the waves, for example, you just want to make sure it doesn't flip over. Uh, so there were a lot, many, many scary moments because of the weather, uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the first week. Uh, but it was interesting that once you get over a few days and you realize that as long as you stay within the boat and we were tethered to it 24 seven. So even when we were rowing, we didn't want the waves to, to wash it out us mm -hmm. out of the ocean. So once you kind of survive and get by for for about a week, I, I would say that we almost had like a false sense of security that, oh, wow, this mm. boat is actually, as long as we don't get washed away, this is, is a safe place to be. But yeah, there were definitely scary moments. And uh, the ocean, there's a reason it's called the ocean, not the lake. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's, it can, you snap your fingers and you go from, calm to massive massive waves so yeah many scary moments so you had a moment of triumph as well on this journey and at some point in the midst of the journey you found out that zillow had acquired your the company that you co-founded trulia um 
Yes. Um, so I had I was on a board of the company. We had gone public. I had left my operational role. Hence, it was possible for me to do a 45-day rowing trip, but more or less exactly in the midpoint, in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, through the satellite phone, I, I got a text message about approving uh, this merger or acquisition of Zillow acquiring truly the company that I had co-founded for, you know, lots of money. And in many ways, it was a, it was a good deal for, for everyone. But that was yet another one of those almost like now that I think of other out of body experience that we had done that role, but in the middle of an ocean, you get, you get that kind of a question. And it was sort of bittersweet. Obviously, we decided to do the deal and the companies merged. But it was also, you know, as a founder, it's kind of your child and then somebody else buys the company and it's in somebody else's hands. It was a very emotional moment. And, you know, it's a, of course, a lot of people ask, like, you must have been so excited your company sells for $3.5 billion while you're rowing. But it's just not that simple. It's just, I would say it was like a new beginning for me. I would say that's the one thing. And uh, conse actually, consequently, after we finished the row, I, I really made the 100% decision to to not just found Verda, but go and scale it and mm -hmm. go all in. So in some ways, it was like a new beginning in the in the middle point of the role. And then from that point onwards, it's like, all right, well, that chapter in my life is 100% over, like 100%. Mm -hmm. And that kind of felt good, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it was it was a bittersweet moment. Mm -hmm. You you sort of alluded to it when, when we were at the beginning of the conversation and you said you were really thoughtful about founding Verda because you knew exactly what you were getting into because you had already founded Trulia and taking it public and then taking it through the acquisition. And you knew how hard it was going to be to build a big company again. What were some of those lessons from, from starting Trulia and building it and scaling it that you were able to immediately apply at Verda? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I think there's actually not not number of things. Let's see. Um, one, I do think entrepreneurs should unexplainably fall in love with what they want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the only way to have the grit and perseverance over a decade or decades. So there has to be something way beyond, oh, my friends are starting a company, I want to, or that's a cool idea, or oh, I want to whatever, make a bunch of money. Uh, so that's one thing. And that got me over the being tricker shy and should I actually start this company that I just sort of unexplainably fell in love with this idea that I could be part of the solution of solving this massive diabetes epidemic. And it felt very personal because of, I found that I was pre-diabetic. And so that's one, like you have to be thousand percent in mm -hmm. kind of in your heart as opposed to just your mind. So, so that's one thing. Uh, second thing is actually relates to our mission. And we have mission reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people. I do think defining a clear North Star is very, very important, which admittedly, I actually did not do very well, or we didn't do very well at, at Trulia. Hmm. And so having that clear mission, it's helpful for the founder, the founders, early team, recruiting, fundraising, telling the story. It's, it's like an anchor, like this is why we're here. Um, and, and I found that that's a very, very important thing to have. 
So that's the, kind of the second thing. Uh, third one is uh, the importance of defining and then living up to values uh, is is very, very important because ultimately it's all about the people and there has to be some sort of glue that brings people together and helps everyone understand what, what do we stand stand here for. And then the last thing I would say, and this could be a longer topic, is um, for someone who comes from outside of the industry, like, you know, I'm, I was an immigrant to America 2003. I certainly didn't know real estate, truly as a real estate marketplace. And my co-founder didn't know either. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm in healthcare. We have a provider-led telemedicine company. We reverse a complex chronic disease. So I'm an outsider in healthcare too. So a lot of the same approaches that I applied and we applied it truly as outsiders coming in, those lessons were very, very applicable. And there's a handful of things that I, I just basically took the took a page from my own uh, book from Trulia and applied. Mm -hmm. So quite a few things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the elements that you mentioned were values and really being clear about your values. You all have seven values at Verda. Is there one of the seven that you think about more often that, you know, that really resonates with you? Yes, uh, it's, it's people first. It's actually our first value, mm -hmm. and I can explain it in a second. But first, just why do I think it's so important to define the values? Um, well, I think entrepreneurs sometimes have this misconception that they can choose if they kind of end up having values, that they can sort of choose should we have values or not. That's not true. It's not true because the second you put more than one person, two or more people into a room, even if it's a couple, values form, it's either implicitly or explicitly. Mm -hmm. it, it's just it's just a village or family or any group of people, they have some sort of unspoken code of conduct or values. And it just kind of happens. So no founder has the decision or the, the freedom to choose do we end up having values. The freedom they have is do we try to shape them to a direction we want to, or do we want them to randomly and organically just go wherever it happens to go? And to me, it's, it's kind of like driving a car. Do I want to turn the steering wheel or do I just want to hope that it stays on the road? As it's, to me, it's always a better choice to actually take control if, if, if you can. So anyways, I just wanted to mention that, that um, to me, it's a no brainer. You, you should define the values. But yeah, the one that I, I mostly think about is the people first. Um, and for us, it means putting patients first, putting ourselves first and seeing all our colleagues and Verda team members that we work with as humans first, um, whatever decision we make, because that's what we are. We're just a bunch of broken humans trying to get through a day but in a professional setting, somehow we forget that. It's like, well, no, it's just the brain in front of me. It's another brain who's trying to solve a problem, which is such a limited view of who we are. And mm -hmm. so to have most fun, to make most out of whatever we're trying to do, I think you need to see the people first, mm -hmm. uh, the person first, the human first. And so that value is probably the most important, people first. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the fact that you're an immigrant. You grew up in Finland um, on the border of Finland and Russia. And we've we've interviewed many tech CEOs for this podcast. And there is a definite theme in um, 
immigrants who come and found and run amazing companies. I'm talking about people like Nima Gamsari, the CEO of Blend, Josh Reeves, who's a um, first-gen American citizen, CEO of Gusto, Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach, Ali Godzi, CEO of Databricks. Is there something about the immigrant experience in your view that um, predisposes people to be able to found companies, found and build companies? Yeah, you, yeah, you are absolutely right. There are a lot of immigrants who started companies in America. And if you just look at the statistics of, of founder-driven companies uh, that have gone public over the last decade, massive percentages is, are immigrants. That is a good question. Uh, well, first of all, I would say that there could be just self-selection. It's almost like um, if you are not forced to come, let's say, to America as an immigrant or you aren't just pulled with your parents um it's almost like the, by definition you're already an entrepreneur taking a risk to mm -hmm. leave your country and come to uh, america so it's almost like a self-selection so that's certainly part of my dna and my brain wiring that i like to do unconventional things i like to take risks not the kind of risk that's risk my life but i just love taking risks and so that's one thing. And, and to, to be an immigrant, leave your home country behind, leave your friends, leave your family behind and come to a new place. You have to do that. And by the way, that's the most important thing about entrepreneurship, because it's easy to talk about it. But like if you never take the risk to leave your job and put everything on the line, like nothing's going to happen. Like that is the step one and perhaps the hardest step, because it's much easier to take the second step. It's like the ocean roll. Actually, the hardest thing is to push off the shore. After that, you, you, there's only one freaking thing you can do to keep mm -hmm. rolling. So the first is the hardest. So that would be one thing I would say about the immigrants and, and entrepreneurs. And then the second thing is, I do think that it was, um, it was liberating for me to be in a new country where kind of nobody knew me. I, I felt like there's nothing to lose. If I fall, like I don't fall from very high. Like, it's not like I have six generations of family in America. They have crazy expectations. I need to become a doctor or whatnot. There was nothing. Nobody knew me. I could do anything. And if I fail, the worst thing that could happen is at, you know, at, at age 30, I moved back to Finland and I live at my mom's house. Mm -hmm. and so it was very liberating. Um, now, it's still difficult. I came from Stanford Business School studying Trulia. You know, everybody's throwing you job offers and, you know, you get a good job and get a six figure salary pretty easily. And then you go and you start something and get paid nothing. And you could spend five years toiling and nothing comes out of it. So you still mm -hmm. have to take the risk. But uh, I think that's the other thing that that was easier. And then, um, yeah, only after I, we had founded and on, on, the, on the Trulia journey, I kind of discovered that there's so many other immigrants but I certainly wasn't looking around and saying, hey, we all immigrants are starting companies. This is totally expected. <laughs> but sort of later I discovered that, yeah, others are doing the same thing. And it's amazing. That's one of the, we can all poke holes into American system and how it's broken and this and that. But it's a freaking amazing place that you can do this. And mm -hmm. people give you money. They encourage you this is one of the only places in the world where this is happening every day and it's possible mm -hmm. and it's amazing.
Mm -hmm. Really amazing. Uh, my teammate, Kenny Vaughn, interviewed Lieutenant General Vince Stewart, who was an um, immigrant from Jamaica. He arrived in the U.S. with a backpack, and that's it, and ended up becoming one of the most senior leaders in the Marine Corps. And he said something like, we have so much work to do in this country, but it is still the only country where my rise would have been possible. So both things can be true at the same time. Um, can we talk a little bit about your upbringing in Finland? Um, because that was kind of where you learned the sort of value of hard work. You've talked about how hard it is to build these companies and how much energy and drive and grit you've got to be prepared to expend. And did you actually learn that potato farming in Finland? Was that kind of your earliest sort of exposure to the value of hard work? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I grew up on a farm and, you know, my parents worked in a factory. So this was kind of their side thing that we got, I don't know, 75% of the food we ate from the farm, potatoes and grain and whatnot, chicken eggs and and, and so forth. Um, well, it, it is this good question of um, like why some people like to work and work hard and put everything on the line, like how much it is learned and how much it's just sort of wired in you. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I think people tend to take credit that they developed their grit and they, they kind of made a decision to work hard. Now it could be just a matter of luck that you got the genes and that that's kind of what ended up happening. But I, I will say two things about the hard work. One, I certainly had lived through that. So, you know, you have farm kid, you go to school, then you come from, school and then you go to the freaking field pick potatoes and whatever uh clean you know the chicken coops so big like you just had to work all the time winter is cold in finland we heated our house with firewood and firewood did not show up by you know paying buying we went to the forest and picked the firewood and that that's like two months of work to be able to heat the house for for the next winter so that was just very natural. I cross-country skied to school in the winter most days. I biked to school in the summers. There wasn't, you know, SUV shuttling me <laughs> door to door. So definitely I lived. And so that became like the normal. Like you're doing something all the time physically. And yeah, it's, it's not easy. So I, I definitely lived through that. So however much that has help me i i don't know and then but then the second thing i would say and i give this example to my team and this relates to the mission and caring what you do to me it's unbelievable that people go and climb mount everest it's ridiculously hard they don't get paid in fact they may pay thirty thousand dollars for the privilege of almost dying and the risk of dying is high and they do it with a smile on their face yet some people get paid 100000 for their work and they dislike their job. Like, what's the disconnect? And the disconnect is that if you're excited about what you're doing, you're literally willing to risk your life climbing Mount Everest and pay other people rather than expect to get paid. So you have to do things that feel somehow personal. And so I feel very lucky I feel like I haven't worked a single day in my life. Hmm. Like I'm, I've, I've never like, I've just done things that are interesting and exciting at some level. 
And that's very, very helpful in pushing you forward. And that Mount Everest to me is just like, I've never climbed Mount Everest. I would never do that. It's crazy. Why would you do that? Uh, some Says people the know. man who rode across the Pacific. <laughs> Um, but that goes to show that if you care, if you're excited about what you're doing, you're literally willing to do it, not just without salary, but to pay other people, risk your life and suffer and maybe lose your toes in the process. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Is that why you created the happiness index? This is a tool that you created while you were leading Trulia. Um, Partially, yeah. Well, th this whole happiness index was, and and now there's even companies built around like surveying your employees and so forth, like companies like CultureAmp and so forth. Um, but it was just clear to me that uh, in any professional, any work setting, particularly in a knowledge worker setting where people are supposed to be creative, um, and it's it's not like you can switch off all your thinking and you can just repeat a task, you need to feel kind of fulfilled and happy and motivated and I've, I've just always been a big fan of like if we have no information no data we don't know how things are going it's like impossible to improve or address so i thought well we've got to measure that somehow and so i just whipped up some sort of a um engagement or uh pulse we called a pulse survey um and then we just run it first monthly and then quarterly and then we sort of followed uh, and then whenever there was a dip or some big change to either direction, we tried to look into the root causes, like what was happening? Is it the environment or something's happening in the business or the way we're treating each other or, or something else? Um, and I actually found it very helpful. One interesting thing was there was a clear seasonality when we had like summer vacations or big all hands, all company events where everybody came together and there was always like a positivity uptick hmm. for a couple of months. And then, so it was just interesting to notice that there was like annual seasonality because we do hmm. on multiple years. That is interesting. And it, um, it makes me think about COVID and just the impact on all of us of working remotely, you know, cause they're at our, our team at Breakline is entirely remote. We always have been, but there are real benefits to being t physically together in the same room. Has COVID changed the way that you manage and lead? Um, it's on some level, no, some level, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, where it has changed, first of all, I, I should say, obviously nobody wanted a pandemic. It's been horrible, you know, just the human suffering and deaths and it's ridiculous. It's just really horrible. Uh, but here, here we are bunch of biology and humans fighting against viruses. Uh, so it's been horrible in, in, in that sense. Now, fortunately for our company and for our business, we are a telemedicine company and virtual care. And by the way, reversing type two diabetes is a massively life improving and very likely life saving thing, mm -hmm. not just in itself, but when combined with, with COVID-19 because uh, COVID-19 is not, is not that deadly, but when you combine it with obesity and type 2 diabetes, it becomes very deadly. Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's been wonderful that the work we do is like made for this moment and we can deliver care, care virtually. But, but that said, uh, for our team, although we were able to switch to virtual work and everything 
basically everything virtual. That was pretty easy. You know, it's, it's definitely been tough. And as a leader, tough in that you don't have the team or connection. You don't have these subtle little moments after meeting, seeing people, kind of this personal connection, hiring new people, building trust without breathing the same air and being around is much, much, much harder. Um, so as a leader, I've, I've tried, first of all, I've, I've tried to travel myself more to go and be meet with people, walk and talks outside, those kinds of things to engineer these in-person connections because they don't happen naturally at the office. So that's one thing I've changed. Two is we've engineered more moments where people can informally, socially uh, connect, mm. whether that's listening sessions or morning coffee hours or those kinds of things. Um, and then thirdly, I would say just the, the importance of communication always kind of goes up exponentially when an organization grows. But mm -hmm. in a virtual setting, it further goes up because people don't see you. The only thing they see from you is your, you know, obviously some video meetings, but your written communication. And so there's so much room for misunderstandings and stories people create in their heads because we are story machines. And if, if mm -hmm. we, we always have limited information, so people create stories. So, so there are a few things that I've, I've changed. Um, because of this COVID-driven, fully virtual work environment. Um, but um, it's also exciting to, it has been exciting to see how the team has come together and not to survive, but thrived. And a little bit like the role with my wife, when you get through experiences that seem like insurmountable and you get through those, it really bonds and brings people together. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, um, you're building this company. It's an all in effort as you've described, but you continue to be a very serious athlete. Can you talk to us about the role of athletics in your life? You know, why you continue to devote time and effort to that pursuit? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do certainly exercise quite a bit. Um, why do I do that? Maybe it goes, partially back to this example of climbing Mount Everest, why would mm -hmm. people do that? It's <laughs> There's some uh, driving force that people are excited. I'm excited to, to exercise every day, but um, to try to peel the onion, um, to me, the, there's a number of things. One is, uh, we, we, are, we are animals, right? We humans are animals, and that's, feeling that I have working limbs, arms and legs and I can sweat and my heart can pound and I can move and I can feel the physical pain. It's incredible to me. It's just an incredible feeling and I want to experience it as long as I can, as long as I'm healthy. This idea that I only would have body to move my brain from one meeting to another mm -hmm. would be horrible. Like. So, so that's one, like, I, I love this feeling of running up a mountain and sweating and heart pounding and feeling like an animal because we are animals. And mm -hmm. so that's one. I love that. Uh, the second thing is I've just noticed mentally, however, it hormonally and biologically works, the endorphins, the thinking clarity, stress relief, it is just, and I'm sure it's deeply wired into us humans. We are not supposed to sit in a room 
type on a keyboard and stare pixels on the screen and then go to bed. That is not how we evolved. Mm -hmm. And so to have that exercise, in, especially in nature every day, is so positive for my mood and, and, and everything. And then I, I think the third one is I, I am a very competitive person. And so I like competing, you know, either casually or more seriously, whether that's cycling or trail running or, or something like that. So I, I do like that, like taking a goal and say, hey, I'm just going to do that bike race in six months and then you train for it and you try to improve. And, you know, mostly it's just like a game for me. It's like, who cares if I'm first or second or third, but it's just like a game of trying to improve and have a goal. And I, I love that excitement that comes from that process. Mm -hmm. um, I find you hysterically understated because you know, you're talking about going out for a bike ride, but what you're huh. really doing is competing in Ironman competitions and winning them. <laughs> um, do you think that, you know, taking, taking this pursuit, this athletic pursuit and the interest and the passion that you have for it, has it been a, um, you know, a virtuous cycle with your success as an entrepreneur, you know, excellence in this area of your life contributes to excellence in another area of your life? For me, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely 100%. Now, I can't say that this is a prescription for everyone that it would be mm -hmm. helpful, but for me, 100%. Um, and the, I'd say that the reasons are one, um, it is easy as an entrepreneur to take risks and succeed if your identity is not 100% tied into your company, which it very easily is, particularly first-time founders. Uh, so I, I have a number of different quote-unquote identities, at least in my brain. And when I'm an athlete and go, I compete, nobody cares what I do for work. It's That's a different world, and you know we'll see who's fastest. So, so there's that one... To have these different outlets where nobody knows what you do, who you are, kind of, um, I think it's very important and it, it makes it easier to take risks and succeed as an entrepreneur. So there's that is one. Uh, and then the second thing is what I already mentioned. I do think for personal mental health and thought clarity and just being able to be healthy, physically healthy, and prioritizing things that keep you physically healthy is absolutely necessary. Uh, I, I just, I feel bad for people who think like eating poorly and pulling all-nighters and considering, you know, limited sleep, badge of honor is a good thing for a professional worker or knowledge worker. That's horrible. Nobody mm -hmm. would do that. Like there's so much research, like your IQ goes down, you're crumpy, your team, you can't work creatively. It's like, Seriously, is that how you're building a successful company? Um, so I think that the second thing is just, just to help things. And, and there's always some things I learned from measuring and tracking. And um, like one mindset that's very important in sports that I applied to, to businesses, it's kind of like it doesn't really start matter where you start. What's your level of some metric five or how could you a runner or whatever? It's the process of constant improvement. Hmm that defines how far and how fast you get there. Um, and I always give this example, like imagine if you improve something 1% a year, 1% a day, and it compounds over a year. It's like, 
you know, let's see if on my math here goes quickly right. It's like 3,600% or 37 time improvement. Uh, so 3,600% over the course of the year improving. So, and in sports, it's easy. It's, you, you do a race and you write down three things you can improve next time. Next race, write down three things you can improve. You just constantly try to do that. So that process is way more important than like, am I a good manager, for example? It's like, imagine if you spend 30 minutes, five minutes every day, reading and learning and thinking how I can become a better manager. Imagine the compounded over three years. Like, how could the manager you in three years? Uh, so I think a lot of people sometimes like, are you a smart or not? Are you good at this or not? Well, it's a good cocktail party conversation, but like getting stuck with that is really bad. You should get yeah. stuck with the process. What's the best process to improve something tiny bit every day or every week? And then you look back five years later and it's like, oh my God. Like I took this, I had, I had not done a single triathlon when I came to America. 2003, um, 2004, I did the first event, 2011, I won the world championships. That's seven years, like seven years, seven years. And you know, obviously I had a job at, at the same time. So, and I sucked in the first event. I just like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna keep doing it and try to improve 1% every week or something. Um, this sounds a lot like the growth mindset, which was a concept developed by Stanford professor Carol Dweck. So the idea that you can improve if you just make yeah. intentional effort to improve. Sammy, we're coming up on time. I want to ask one question, which is um, for the breakline community and the, and the folks that we serve, veterans, women, people of color, many of whom are approaching a career transition or they're at a point where they're building their careers in a new space. What advice do you have for them as professionals? You know, what advice would you have given yourself as you were starting out in your career? Things that you know now that you didn't know then. Um, how would you advise our folks going forward? Yeah, well, that that's a, a, a heavy question there. And, and by the way, we treat, we hire veterans at Verda. We treat, we work with the U.S. Veterans Administration. We yes. You mentioned women. I think majority of Verda team is women. I don't remember now if it's right now because we've hired so many people. Is it 60 or 55%? But it's majority is women. Um, That's awesome. But um, so obviously we hire women too and minorities. And, uh, and, and generally we try our team to reflect our patient population, which is we treat mm -hmm. states and everywhere. But anyways, that's not what you asked. Um, career advice. I, I think... Um, the one thing that I kind of got over myself by accident, uh, and I'll explain why in a sec, but I've noticed from a lot of other people that here's one thing that holds people back from like fulfilling careers. The sooner you realize that nobody else, nobody else does not care what you do for a living, the better off you are. People think like, especially with social media, like, oh, my friends, everybody cares. What do I do? What's my title? Where I work? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. The sooner you admit and realize that and internalize that, the happier you will be, the better career choice you will make, and the better off you'll probably 
be in your career. Like, do not make career and life decisions based on what you think other people will think. Because nobody cares. Nobody cares. After they've liked or disliked your post on your Facebook when you have a new job, they two seconds later, they don't even remember which job you took. But people think, oh my God, what are, they, what are people going to think when I do this? Nobody cares. And internalizing that is probably the best career advice I could give to like a 22-year-old. Or someone mm-hmm. coming out of a top business school or whatever. Mm-hmm. No and why why is that the best advice? Does it free you to take bigger risks? It, it, it frees you to make the best decision for yourself, not for mm. your parents, not for your friends. And gives you the freedom to follow the path that you is personally right for you. Rather than the expectations societally or your community or well, my neighbor is doing that. Like, I need to definitely work in a tech company too. Like, no, you don't. Um, I just too pe- too many people live their lives to please others mm-hmm. who don't even care what you do. Sami, what a treat to have you with us for the last hour. Thank you so much for carving out the time. It's been really fun to hear about your journey, to hear more about Trulia and now Verta Health. And we just wish you and your team all the best as you continue getting after this very important mission. Yeah, thank you so much. That was very, very fun. And uh, good luck with your journey too. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I'll tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So um, please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.